morning, church. What a privilege that we can uh, read the Word of God here this morning, who has um, been put down on paper for us almost 2,000 years ago. So if you have your own device, we are reading from Mark 3, verse 7 to 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he had appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip. Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside, they're looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? 
he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Hi right. <laughs> well, everyone and uh, welcome in live stream land, good to have you with us. Um, just a, a quick um, public service announcement, um, while you're either getting your device open to Mark chapter 3 or um, a bit of great technology called a book, getting your Bible open to Mark chapter 3, uh, if you've got little ones and you need to take them to the parents room, there is a parents room through there that's got everything you need. So what would I know, it's been a long time since I had a baby. <laughs> Let's pray and we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, um, help us to give our full attention to your scriptures now that we might learn and love better. Amen. Sports, team sports, I should say, have never been a great feature of my life. I really like them. I just don't have much personal experience of them. Uh, looking back when I played cricket at my local club, I think I was bullied by the coach's son. And I just want to say it's not too late to apologise, even now if you're watching Alex Furtado. But it's kind of an enduring family joke that the only sport I ever represented my high school in was lawn bowls, once. <laughs> I went to school in the city and uh, the choice of summer sports involved things like golf at Moore Park or sailing at the Spit, which cost a lot of money. They took a lot of time. They were a long way away from my home and basically just a hassle. So when a teacher at my school, who was a member of the city bowling club at Hyde Park, suggested that could be a summer sports option I was intrigued. When I found out that it was free, it was close to school, and it finished early, I was in. So uh, a bunch of my pals got together, and we would have the same strategy for every end. We'd throw the first few balls, uh, bowls down carefully, getting them as close as we could to the little white jack. And then for the last one, we would peg down a firecracker as hard as we possibly could, hitting whatever it did, and seeing if we could get it to jump the gutter and into College Street. The best part of the whole thing was that um, you'd finish early and then you'd join the old mates in the bar for a lemon squash on the house. The way I saw it, they were paying me to play. So I could be lugging golf clubs uphill and down dale all afternoon, or I could throw down a few lazy ends, then rile up the old boys in the bar before nicking home early. Now, I did say that I represented the school in Long Bowls once. So you won't be surprised to find out that our high-performance team of finely-tuned athletes went down fighting 25-3. to 3. We thought an excellent time to quit while we were ahead, and we never played again. So I was bullied, uh, and then I bowled briefly, and that was really my experience of team sports. Maybe you've had a, a fuller experience. Maybe you've been on different kinds of teams, you know, work teams, uh, music groups, uh, boards, things of that nature. Well, today we're discovering who is on Jesus' team. And I want to ask the question, are you? So far in our series, The Story That Changes Everything, we've seen Mark paint a very powerful picture of Jesus as Lord. Uh, Lord of the Sabbath, last week, uh, but also Lord over demons, to be quiet, come out, and they do. Lord over diseases, be clean, and their stuff for a or get up, and they do. Lord over the disciples, follow me, and they do. Lord even over sins. I mean, that's the prerogative of God alone, and yet Jesus forgave them nonetheless. 
Lord, even over sinners, when he pursued them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we understand that Jesus has authority. But the question is, who is on his team? That's my favourite team, by the way, the Australian women's cricket team. Who is on his team are you? That's the question for today in our last week in our series from these early chapters of Mark's Gospel. And as our passage opens, I hope you have it open in front of you, we drop into the first of three scenes. Uh, Verses 7 to 12 by the lake, verses 13 to 19 in the mountains, verses 20 to 35 at a house. But in verse 7, by the lake, a large crowd had uh, followed Jesus from Galilee and had followed his disciples. Now this is a little bit odd actually because Jesus was attempting to withdraw with his disciples after his most recent showdown with the religious authorities that had left the the anti-Roman Pharisees forging a very unlikely alliance with the pro-Roman Herodians with the singular aim of killing Jesus. And so I think the picture is almost comical. Right, he's trying to get away, but the multitudes keep following him. You can imagine him going, what are you guys doing? I'm trying to get away, that kind of thing. Um, But it's a multitude, you'll see, from all over the country. Not only from Galilee in the north, where they were by the Sea of Galilee, verse 7, but from the south, you see Jerusalem, the area of Judea. In fact, the very bottom, Idumea. From the east, that is from the regions across the Jordan River, And even from north of Galilee, you can see the two towns at the top, Tyre and Sidon. So the Pharisees and the Herodians might be wanting to kill Jesus, but Jesus has got an impressive squad, right? a very large entourage. They've literally come from every direction to be on his team. Or have they? Haven't we not already seen this? Is it not the case that they are there in verse 8 because they heard about all that he was doing? Verse 9 and 10 They were crowding him simply because they wanted to be healed as well. Have we not seen this already? That people followed him because he was a novelty. Uh, They could get something out of him. He was somewhat of a tour de force, a phenomenon. And have we not already said that following Jesus means more than admiration? I mean, verse 11, even the dispossessed demons can point out his true identity. You are the son of God. I mean, they're more advanced. They've got more idea than the crush of people so far. But you wouldn't say that they're on board with Jesus. So is the crowd on Jesus' team? Too early to say. As we move into the second scene, uh, probably more likely in the general hill country, central Galilee, than a particular mountain, he calls, verse 13, to those who he wanted, and they came to him so that they might be with him and then go and preach for him. So the disciples or the apostles uh, would be the founders of this new covenant community, really the church. They they were his original mission organization that Jesus would send out. And they're reminiscent, aren't they, of the 12 tribes of Israel as uh, these fellows formed the bedrock of the New Testament people of God. It's interesting that Mark describes their primary job as being with Jesus. They're on his team, but in the most personal sense. And the way Mark records their names reflects that. So there's Simon, first cab off the rank, nicknamed Peter or the Rock by Jesus. There's James and John, who he nicknamed Boanerges, the sons of thunder. 
Thaddeus hiding away there in verse 18 is probably a nickname as well. His real name was Judas, son of James, but here he's called Thaddeus. Uh, some people think it means big-hearted, although there is a, um, a famous translator who thinks it's possible that that nickname could mean the nipple, which I just think is funny. You think, how did he get that nickname? Did he have an unusual birthmark? And you could imagine some of the fun the other disciples might have had with that nickname. You know, like with the nipple past the olive oil. It could be a lot of fun. Well, I thought it was funny. You clearly didn't. So we'll go with the majority reading, Thaddeus. That means big-hearted. What a lovely little detail. There they are, Team Jesus, in the most personal sense. Well, having already spoken of demons, when we head down to verse uh, 21 to the third scene, they're at a house that's so crowded that Jesus and his disciples couldn't eat. And the topic of demons has become another flashpoint between the religious authorities and Jesus. Let's uh, read verse 21. When Jesus' family heard about this, that's the crowded house, they were to take charge of him. for They said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. I mean, Jesus' family is looking at this crowded house and they think he has let this whole situation get out of hand. But a visiting religious party from Jerusalem, I I think they're probably like the doctrine police, lay a, a far more sinister charge. He's not out of his mind. He hasn't let this whole situation get out of hand. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And so they've really turned the question around a little, haven't they? Not so much asking who's on Jesus' team, but whose team is Jesus on? And Satan is their suggestion, possessed by Beelzebul. Who here has just got that Queen song ringing in their minds right now? Great. Two music lovers in the house. Excellent. I saw Michelle Terry smile and Kathy raised her hand. You women are the only ones with guts. Possessed by Beelzebub, literally the Lord of the Flies, the Lord of Baal, that ancient idol, uh, but really a demon. By the Prince of Demons, Satan, is this Jesus driving out demons? And so, of course, Jesus replies with those familiar metaphors. Kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Household divided against itself cannot stand. In June 1858, uh, the Republican State Convention of Illinois chose Abraham Lincoln as their candidate for the U.S. Senate to run against Democrat Stephen Douglas, who believed that each U.S. territory should be allowed to determine whether to permit slavery within its own borders. You know, every state does its own thing. And the Senate campaign featured seven debates between Lincoln and Douglas, which are the most famous political debates in American history. Uh, reputedly, they had an atmosphere akin to a prize fight. Like you would have gone to the, to the Ivanhoe sports bar to watch it on TV, you know? Drew crowds in the thousands. But it all started with the speech that Lincoln gave after he was chosen as the Republican candidate, which became known as the House Divided Speech, in which he quotes this verse, Mark 3.25. He was picturing the anti-slavery states in the north and the pro-slavery states in the south, and he said this, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. 
I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. So you can see what he was saying. I read the speech in full. It's uh, cogent, logical, uh, way more kind of moral and legal than passionate. And his friends thought it was a mistake. Way too radical for this occasion. And his friends were right. Lincoln lost the Senate race. But looking back, they said, standing by that speech is what ultimately made Lincoln president. It's what ultimately led to a United States, not a divided house, as well as the abolition of slavery. And of course, you can't help wondering what Lincoln would have made of the divided house of America today. But a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. A nation divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus doesn't drive out demons by the prince of demons. If that were to happen, verse 26, Satan's end would come. Now the truth is that even within our passage today, Jesus does picture Satan's end coming, but with a far more fitting description of a burglar robbing a house. I mean, Jesus pictures Satan as a strong man, no doubt, but he pictures himself as an even stronger man who's kind of tied up Satan and then plundered his possessions. You see, friends, when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus driving out demons, we're meant to see Jesus as the stronger man who has bound Satan, who is literally taking away his possessions, by which I mean people formerly possessed by demons. He breaks the power of Satan as well as the power of sin and death. In the age to come, Jesus will further quash the very presence, I'm not just talking about the power, but the very presence of sin and death and Satan. It is something that AstraZeneca will never achieve. And so he's not on Satan's team. That just doesn't make sense. But in fact, to even suggest such a thing is a very serious matter because it renders these religious officials off the team permanently. Read along with me verse 28. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. It is a dark pronouncement that there might be a sin for which pardon is not possible. And yet that is what Jesus says very clearly here. And whilst it is true there are, there are no sins so bad that a truly repentant person cannot be forgiven, it is equally true that stubborn and willful unbelief that Jesus is from God will render a person unsaved and unforgiven. But if you look carefully at these verses, Jesus, he seems to be talking about something more specific. You know, look at verse 29. He's talking about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And Mark references the Jewish accusation that Jesus was demon-possessed in verse 30. I think what he's saying is this. If one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus in the hearts and minds of people, impressing his words and his wonders upon their souls, our souls, it's unforgivable to persistently and willfully attribute those words and those wonders to Satan rather than to God. That is, if you deliberately misrepresent Jesus as being from Satan rather than God, despite logic, all the available evidence, there is no avenue for forgiveness because you've purposely refused the only way to salvation. It's as if you've slammed the only escape hatch 
closed behind you. And the consequence is you're off the team. And so the 12 appointed disciples, they're on the team. Is the crowd? Don't know. Too early to say. It just looked like admirers at this stage. Are the demons on Jesus' team? No. What about the religious officials? Clearly not either. Well, what about his family then? His own flesh and blood. Surely they're on the team, right? Many of you would have read the novels by Jodie Picoult. I don't know how you say it, but this is what she said. My mother used to tell me that when push comes to shove, you always know who to turn to. Being a family is not a social construct, but an instinct. Um, those of you with more lowbrow tastes would have read Harry Potter, and the, <laughs> the author, J.K. Rowling, said this. Family is a life jacket in the stormy sea of life. I wonder if you can guess which mother wrote these words some years ago. Like all the best families, we have our share of eccentricities, of impetuous and wayward youngsters, and of family disagreements. Do you know who wrote that? None other than Queen Elizabeth II. Those comments haven't aged well, and I imagine all of them looking up thinking, how do we get out of this? <laughs> really? <laughs> You'd be forgiven for thinking that... It, each of those wise sayings from those wise ladies might apply to this situation. You know, Jesus' foray into public life has exploded in a way that no way could have foreseen and he needs his family to rescue him from this stormy sea. You know, perhaps this impetuous and wayward youngster needs his mother. In verse 21, they heard about the crowded house. By verse 32, they had arrived and they sent the message inside to Jesus, we are here to take you home. The life jacket has arrived, whether you like it or not. Surely they are on his team. They're making a difficult decision for him, out of their love for him. But no, that's not the case. According to Jesus, who is on his team other than the 12 disciples? Not the crowd, not the religious authorities from Jerusalem, perhaps not even his mother and brothers at this stage on their instinctive rescue mission. The only other group we can be sure of who is on his team are the ones gathered around him to listen to him. Verse 34, Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said here, Here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. They are his true family. They're on the team. So I guess the question is, is that you? So far this term, we've listened carefully, haven't we? Methodically, slowly in fact, into Mark's description of Jesus. Within our passage today, we've heard Jesus described as the stronger man who binds the power of Satan. We have heard him found the church upon the foundation of these 12 appointed disciples or apostles who would go out and preach and then write down Jesus' teachings for the benefit of all who would follow in the, in the coming centuries, including us. But before today, we've heard Jesus presented as Lord of the Sabbath, the one who provides ultimate rest. 
we've seen him presented as the divine physician who has come to call all spiritually wretched people to himself. We have heard him forgive sins, the prerogative of God alone. We've, we've seen him reach out and touch a leper saying, be clean in the broadest sense of that word. We've seen him drive out demons because Jesus came not only to bind Satan, but to plunder his possessions and destroy his evil bidding. We have seen him heal many people of various illnesses, pointing forward to the coming kingdom in which he will reign and in which sickness, disease and death will be but a distant memory. And we have heard him call out to ordinary people like us. And friends, we are ordinary. Nothing special about us, really. Uh, ordinary people like those first disciples fishing with that clarion call. Kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Come, follow me. So I just want to say that I don't think we're starved by a lack of information, are we? There's a, a glut of data, a surplus of available evidence as to who Jesus is, this Son of God, this Son of Man, this Lord of Life. And so the question that we finish with today, indeed we finish our whole series with, is are you on his team? Are you part of his family? Jesus has always had plenty of admirers. He does today, he did back then. Um, so much so that in today's passage, the disciples had to put him in a boat <laughs> to kind of get him away from the pressing crowd. But he's not after admiration, is he? I mean, is he? He's looking for people to join his team, to become part of his family. And you do that in the words of verse 34 by gathering around to listen to him. I mean, you do it in the words of verse 35 by doing the will of God, the very first order of which is to believe the good news about the coming kingdom which he brings and over which he rules. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you will probably know that doing the will of God doesn't mean tidying yourself up first. It doesn't mean cleaning up your act or pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, either by moral performance or by um, the service of others, though personal morality and community service are fruits that you want to see in every one of his disciples. No, doing the will of God means you first respond to the call that he has put on your life. Did you notice how Mark put it in verse 13? Jesus called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And so, friends, if you haven't done that, I would invite you to do that this week. Wouldn't it be the best week to do it? Palm Sunday marks the beginning of the Holy Week that culminates in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Perfect week to reflect upon all the evidence available and come to a decision. I don't think there's a better time than right now as we approach Easter. To have the conversations you need to have, um, read the Gospels as you should do, come along to Easter services next Sunday. But there will be many brothers and sisters here today who have done that and in fact have done that and been doing that for decades. Uh, and you know, for us, the truth is that you'd never move on from metaphorically sitting at the feet of Jesus, do you? Listening to him, taking his promises to heart, putting his wisdom into practice, uh, enacting his instruction, making that your rule for life, following the lead of his spirit, across every aspect of our lives. I want to say today, is there a promise 
that you need to take to heart today. Perhaps it's that God remains with you, even though that might look in doubt in the personal circumstances you're facing this very day. Is there wisdom that you ought to enact? You know, is, is, there, is there a place you know that you just shouldn't go to, either in the real world or the online world, because you know where that ends? Uh, is there an instruction to put into effect? Um, perhaps you do need to reconcile with someone else. Uh, is there a, um, a leading of the Spirit, something that you know that He wants you to do in the power of His Spirit and you're just resisting it for some reason? Well, I bet there is something for each and every one of us who's humble enough to admit it. Well, as we finish up, I said earlier that team sports have never been a great feature of my life, but let me say I love being on Jesus' team. He is a great team leader who deserves so much more than mere admiration. And so, friends, we listen to him and we follow him with all of our lives and with all of our hearts. Are you on his team? Let's pray together as we finish. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for uh, this part of Mark's gospel and the encouragement it is to be on his team, not just by admiring him, certainly not by falsely accusing him, but not even by some strange kind of birthright. We ask that you might move in each and every one of us, that we might be people who metaphorically gather at his feet to listen and who do the will of God in our lives, firstly by believing the good news, that the kingdom is near and Jesus brings it. And pray this week we might follow him with all of our hearts. In his name we pray. Amen.